One of the things that all Christians are called to is care for the vulnerable. So the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, those are three categories of people who are the most vulnerable in almost any culture. And so if you don't have your place, if you don't know what that role is, not everyone is called to adopt and do foster care and open a home for widows, let's say, but everyone's called to do something. So keep listening, keep pressing to find what is that that role that you're supposed to play. I also just wanted to say this. I sort of missed some of our fall back to, you know, normalcy after a crazy summer season because I was off on a sabbatical and actually met some people last week that uh, Ben told me that someone came to him and said, hey, I met the uh, new pastor. So uh, <laughs> so it's good, it good to meet them and, and get acquainted. <clears throat> so that was fun. But I wanted to just give a, a quick um, reminder for many of you, but for some of you, this will be brand new. Uh, and that is this. This is sort of a, a picture of how we had, we, we used to think of the church this way. That we're carried along by the Spirit's help. There's nothing that we do that isn't in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so we used to think of ourselves as a church, as a gathered body of believers who are carried and powered by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and yet we, we began to see that this is actually an, ina- an inaccurate picture, that actually this is more a picture of a church. And here's why. We have a vested interest in one another's ministry. We have a vested interest in one another. It's not just that we're all uh, sort of close close proximity, we are linked together. And one of the things that you do when you commit to a church and a church commits to you is you get on board that church. So we began to talk several years ago as as the elders and leaders of this church, and you church body were invited into this, um, to just sort of think about this whole idea of, of where are we heading. And, and you think about any kind of ocean-going vessel or any kind of travel that you need a heading. You need a destination. We're not just a cruise ship that kind of pointlessly goes out there and kind of hangs out for a little bit and then comes back to dock. We're going somewhere. And we prayed and asked God and said, God, where do you want us to point? And so I want you to know, if you're new, that God has led us in some very clear directions. He's pointed us in a direction. And part of our role as shepherds of the church is to stay on course. There's all kinds of currents and winds and different things that are happening that sort of would seek to push us off course, and so that's what we're doing. If you're new and you wonder, why does this church do this or not do this, there's a good chance that it goes back to our heading. There's a good chance that it goes back to the reason that we've said yes to these things and no to these vast majority of things is because we've we've decided to say, God, we're, we're going to go after this direction that you have pointed us in. No matter what kind of uh, boat that you get onto or vessel that you get onto, it's going to dictate sort of the pace uh, and style and all kinds of things that's going on. That's why one church can differ vastly from another church. So what are these sort of headings? What are these three things? We just made three uh, really simple, clear words that will sort of get our head around it. Uh, the first is this, that, that we are seeking to remain simple. And what we, what we mean by that is this. There are a trivial many things in life. We are going to remain focused and prioritized on some vital few things. And believe it or not, that takes real diligence and effort. It does in our own lives, right? It's not enough to just say, hey, we should all prioritize. We know that. What do you prioritize? What do you say yes to and by default say no to a vast majority of things? We also mean by simple this, that we hope to keep the gospel like Jesus, we're going to see this in Luke over and over, is accessible. That God is accessible. 
We want to take the cookies, kids, and put it on the low shelf so that everyone can reach. What if I don't have a background in church? You're welcome to Jesus. What if I don't really, you know, get into all the Greek words that churches sometimes talk about? We might bring up Greek words here, but you're welcome to Jesus. We're going to make this not simplistic, because life isn't simplistic. The Bible isn't simplistic, but it is simple. It's accessible. We try to put it in everyday language. Number two is family. What that means quite simply is this, that we will live out the reality that the Bible says we're adopted into a family. So that's the motif that we've grabbed hold of. And when you wonder, why do we do our budget that way? Why do we handle this way? Why do we bring this together? This Sunday, in fact, is a marker of this. The first Sunday of every month, we have a tradition around here that says, children, you are welcome to worship with us all through the entire service. Now, on these first Sundays, there are some things that the preacher usually does to acknowledge that we have a wider range of attention spans, a wider range of sort of thoughts and ideas, and there's often something brought into that. Here, let me say this. Any Sunday of the year, if you want to bring your children in and have them sit through the entire service, they're welcome. I tell new moms this all the time. In fact, Mary was mentioned earlier. I remember distinctly Mary having one of her children, and I just told her, I said, listen, I'm really comfortable with noise. Um, I've preached in foreign countries where there's animals wandering around, um, and I live in a place where if I wasn't comfortable with noise, I would never talk. I would just shut down and get mad and wait for it to be quiet, and then everyone else would be happy because they could talk more. I'm comfortable with noise. What happens is sometimes others aren't. And it's a huge distraction. So we have this cry room back here. But I tell new moms this. I say, hey, if, you're, you know, if your baby is, is soothed by movement and you want to do sort of the uh, mommy dance in the back, you know, I may start preaching and I may start doing some stuff with you. But you do that, that won't distract me whatsoever. I remember Mary back there just sort of so she could be a part of things. We do things in a family way here. Uh, this outreach up to paradise that Ben's going to head up. Uh, that's open to the whole family. I love when the youth says, hey, let's, let's go do a canned food drive. Let's do a blood drive. Let's do this. And let's invite the whole church into it. I love when a small group says, hey, let's do this and invite the youth into it. So, so most often, we grab and go as a family and do things. There are some things that aren't overly appropriate for certain ages, and we often leave the discernment for that to you. San Francisco Homeless Outreach, Wandering the Tenderloin Area at 9 p.m. may not be great for kindergartners. In fact, it's not. I'll just say it. Um, so so we, might, we might put the kibosh on that. All right, thirdly is this, that gifts. Every church preaches that every Christian receive birthday presents on their born-again birthday. But you know what? It's a wrestling match to actually live that way. If all you had a sense of church was Sunday mornings, you'd think Rob's gifted, the guy with the kitar is gifted. Isn't that cool, by the way? What year is it that we have kitar and peg pants on Travis? I love it. And my hair's going back to the 90s with every day that passes. It's incredible. Um, but on a Sunday morning, you might get a sense that a sliver of Christians are gifted in sort of this public way, and that's it. And, and we are committed. We're committed to not only preach and say and teach but believe and walk in and function with this reality. If you are a Christian, hear me, you are supernaturally gifted. And hear me once more, we are less of a body. We are not functioning in healthy wholeness and maximum effectiveness if all the parts of the body aren't functioning in their giftedness. How much room for giftedness is there on a Sunday morning when we all gather together? Not many, to be honest. There's a world of things that sort of go on behind the scenes. But that's why 
Church, church is every day, right? Worship is every day. And so there's all kinds of ministries that are taking place not under our roof. Um, and, and we want to explore that, talk about that, and value that. Let me say one more thing at the start of Luke. If you want to, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you're new to the program, that's the New Testament. Two-thirds of the way into your Bible. We highly and strongly encourage you to open Bibles, open programs to say, man, is this what the scriptures say? Uh, we hope that it'll be something that will, um, that will spur you on to, to look more carefully. We have a tendency, people ask about our church all the time, I say we have a habit of going through books of the Bible. That's our normal thing. We're not uptight about it. We can go do a topical series and we do that sometimes, but our sort of bread and butter is that we take books of the Bible and we go through them uh, verse by verse. Why is that? What is the value in walking through a book of the Bible? Let me give you a couple of quick things. One is this, it's biblical. People often say it's not biblical. We actually see freedom to preach topically or preach just sort of at 30,000 feet when you think of Peter preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, right? He covers just a lot of ground. I remember listening to Kel's sermon. I was driving across beautiful sort of North Oregon on a glorious morning, and I'm listening to Kel preach and Sarah translate a few weeks ago in Jeremiah, and, and I was like, get it, Kel! Preach it, Kel! I thought he was going to preach the whole Bible. I kid you not. He he went so far back that I'm like, just keep going. I mean, 15 more minutes, you could get right through Revelation, and we could just call it good. It was incredible. There's biblical precedence for that. We see that in Peter. But there's also biblical precedence for teaching through the Scriptures. How do we know that? We know that the letters, we call them the epistles sometimes, those were passed around from church to church. We know in the Old Testament that, the, that any, anyone Jewish would just be used to reading the Word, right? The written Word. That was worship, that the Word was read publicly. It's why we open our Bibles and read the Word publicly here. We also think about Jesus who, on the way, it says he opened Scriptures and he showed them. He, he preached to them kind of you know, through the story to show them how they arrived at him. Number two is this. Walking through a book of the Bible stretches both the preacher and the congregation. Here's what I mean by that. It is easier for preachers to preach on pet topics and ideas and strong points in my own walk. It's far more stretching to preach through a book of the Bible, like we just tackled Romans, then Jeremiah, and then lengthy Luke is where we're headed. We're on like a let's get difficult mode. I don't know. But when you're preaching through things, you come across things as the preacher and you just say, God help me, any good preacher who's being biblical should preach the sermon to themselves first. And if it were just left to me, I would pull up topics and ideas of what has my fancy, what's interesting to me and all of that. At least there would be that temptation. It's also tempting to have the congregation remain really comfortable and like hearing things. And you know what? Preachers can get, can get skewed by attaboys. Oh, just love that. I love when you do that. I love that message about that. And left to the flesh, what, what could happen? Oh, I should do more of that. I kind of like that. I kind of like those, those feedbacks. Walking through a book of the Bible just, just eliminates some of that, or at least, at least diminishes that. There's not, there's not still a temptation, but it eliminates that. Some of you have been through physical therapy, and you know that your healing and restoration lies in a path of stretching that is often to the point of pain versus remaining comfortable. Spiritual growth is very, very similar. There are things 
I say up here that I hope are just from God's word that I hope you glare at me. I hope you get mad at me. I hope you look at me and, and I hope I go, oh, I think something's landing. Like, I don't like that. That's not my personality. But I, I honestly know that what's happening is that wince of pain is most often physical therapy. It's stretching you, congregation, to say, man, I don't even like that. I don't even know what to do with that. That's not really the God that's in my head. So that's what preaching through the Bible does. A couple more. It models a way for us to teach at home. You know what you don't need? You don't need a slick devotional. You don't need special skill. Let me talk to fathers for a second. God's plan A is that mom and dad would be together, that when they have children, however they come into the household, biologically through adoption, that there would be a spiritual authority of the man in the house. That just says, I have covering over this house in prayer and in spiritual leadership. Guys, let me equip you with something. With the Holy Spirit, which every Christian has, and the Bible, you are equipped to lead your family. What we're doing here on Sundays is a model for you. Open your Bible, start in a passage, read a little bit, and discuss it. One of the powerful things about Sunday mornings is if you take what you're learning and you pass it on because you're mentoring someone younger in the faith, won't you listen differently on a Sunday morning if you are going to be teaching it to someone else in a few days? So I recognize there's all kinds of things that happen. Some of you, that's mom. Some of you, that's grandma. That's, that's saying, how can I shepherd the next generation? How can I shepherd those in my household? Uh, that's modeled here. Another reason of why going through a book of the Bible is so powerful, it it increases faith. In faith, the preachers that stand up here are preaching through the word of God. There are so many times where I think, God, you know where your people are at better than I am. I wish we could be talking about joy or suffering because that's where many people are. And yet here we are talking about dietary laws in Romans. How how can that be helpful? By faith, I'm just going to, I'm going to keep preaching. We can pull off if we want to and talk about something else, and we've done that before, but by and large, we just keep walking through. Over and over again, you, congregation, have committed yourself to saying, I'm going to commit that the preacher is in touch with the Holy Spirit and prayerfully feeding us. And over and over again, the stories that come out, often not in the same week, but to say, man, a few weeks ago, you were talking about these dietary laws. I was sort of checked out, but something clicked. This happened, that happened, and you know what? I was asking all the wrong questions in my life at that point. I was so focused on my physical pain, I forgot all about my spiritual pain. God met me there in that place. I tell you, that happened, it has increased my faith as a preacher of God's word over and over and over again that I say, God, I'm offering this up to you. You do your work. Here's a final one. Preaching through a book of the Bible sort of anchors hot topics. Hot topics are those that that talking heads on TV and screens and media are putting out. There's only so much spotlight to kind of show around, and it seems sometimes like media outlets, like if one news channel is covering this story, they all sort of rush to sort of cover the same story. Then there's nuanced differences. If one's leading with this, they all sort of, you know, one-up each other. What happens is this. Sometimes we could get into a situation where we're just sort of chasing the wind. Isn't it true that five years ago, we were probably talking about some of the, the wrong stuff just culturally you just go man so much effort and talk was going on there where's any of that none of that had any real substance to it so instead of sort of frantically looking around what is what does the bible say about this one thing that everyone's talking about at the office 
It sort of grounds the hot topic discussion. Oftentimes you'll find things, by the way, that God is speaking to it, but it pulls you out to the bigger story that God is telling you. All right. That's sort of an introduction of where we're going with Luke. Luke chapter 1, 1 is where we're going to be in just a second. Let me encourage you, of all ages, to take notes however you see fit. Some of you are like note takers where you write sort of traditional notes. You have neat outlines. It frustrates you if you accidentally wrote Roman number 3 and you meant Roman number 2, so you erase it and you do this and that, and they just look spectacular. Some of you are artistic, And it helps you to draw. Some of you are not artistic, nor good at Roman numerals, but sort of tracing something helps. Whatever works for you. I have been known even to give people Play-Doh. You know this. I will give you Play-Doh because sometimes working with your hands and and letting creativity fire off and and do things. Whatever helps you with, with, with you sort of letting these truths sink into your life. Let me give you freedom to do it. If it gets a little too crazy, if you like trapeze work when you listen to sermons, I just may have to say no to that. But, but outside, I've never had to do that. So let me encourage you along those lines. Today, we're beginning a brand new series in Luke. And I want to start off by just asking um, who's hungry. And you might say, well, hungry for what? And I'm going to give you that answer. I'm not going to make you do the brown bag thing. But is anyone interested in a banana this morning? Okay, Nate, don't bruise it. There you go. I have sung the praises of brown cow yogurt in the past. It's an incredible yogurt. And this happens to be strawberry flavor, so you can't be allergic to that. This row is killing it. This is a hungry row. All right, one more. Trader Joe's. Uh, blueberry breakfast bar. Anyone want that? I need, there we go, Brandon. Boom. Look at that. All right. You guys may feel free to eat that while we read some scripture. I heard this said somewhere. I can't remember where, but it stuck with me. There are no unbelievers in the world. There are only people who believe in different things. That tracks with me. We so often say, are you a believer or an unbeliever? Follow up question. In what? What are we talking about? Well, in Jesus. What about Jesus? What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus? All kinds of categories could kind of spin off of that. There's an ongoing test in life, and you young people in the room could look to your elders in the room and watch them nod vigorously that there is an ongoing test in life What should I believe? And the longer you live this life, the more that test plays out in bigger and bigger ways with deeper consequences. Every day, you are faced with this ongoing test. What should I believe? Switchfoot has this great lyric in a song. It says this, you start to look like what you believe in. You start to look like what you believe in. It's a biblical idea, right? You plant seeds to righteousness. What comes in a different season? A harvest of righteousness. You plant seeds to the flesh. What comes in another season, inevitably, it's a law of the harvest, is death. You start to look like what you believe in. So what should I believe in big and small ways every day affects not only the quality of of, of your life, but quite really, I mean, in a very practical way, it it, it affects the length of your life. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 1, says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good for me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Someone look it up. How many verses are in the first chapter of Luke? Open book test. How many? I was going to say, just flip a page and look. There's usually a little number. It's a long chapter. We're only covering four verses today. We're just giving you an intro. We're just giving you a little taste. Some of you were here for sort of just a worship prompt this morning. Asking you... What is it that you are certain of? Is it possible to be certain of things? Yes or no? Okay. What are you certain of? Anyone want to venture just kind of tossing out? Uh, we'll be gracious. This is a place of worship. This is a place of grace. This is church. This is family. What are you certain of? Someone. Huh? Death. What else goes with that? Taxes. There you go. Okay, what else? Two plus two is four. We have a side discussion group happening later on after church. Our pastor of math, Ben, will be heading it up. What else? What else are you certain of? Everybody is born of a mother. Everyone is born of a mother. Okay? The way we all got here. What else? God loves you. Okay? The earth is not flat. We must be fed to live. What was in the back? We all live by the grace of God. Okay. Let me stop you there. Follow-up question. How are you certain of these things? How did you arrive at a place of certainty with these things? Let's, let's take something uh, really universal and talk about people being born of mothers. How did you, and we can help each other out, but how did you arrive at, at being certain of that? What makes you certain of that? The, Evidence. The thing speaks for itself. Okay, so there's sort of a self-authenticating nature to it, okay? <laughs> right on cue, a little child's cry. <laughs> what else? Experience? Experience? Personal experience, Ladies? Guys, you were there, but experienced it differently. Do you remember your own birth? Have you visited every person on the planet and watched their birth? And yet, probably most of us, unless we're being snarky, would say, I'm pretty certain that everyone's born of a woman, of a mom. They all have a mom, right? So as we press into this a little bit, let me go back to the hungry people for a second. Sadie, I see you eating your yogurt. Did you stir it up? I forgot to tell you. It's a cream top. Okay. Because if you don't, you're going to think it's terrible yogurt. Um, all right. So are you eating your yogurt or just, or just stirring it? You're eating it? Okay. How is it? You a fan? 
Okay. They're on sale at Sprouts sometimes. That's when I buy them. Uh, breakfast bar. We saw, I see just a wrapper. Did you eat that? Okay. Uh, banana boy. How's it going? Done. These guys were hungry. They weren't lying. All right. So we had three different people. Um, let, me, let me ask you for a second. Um, you just ate a piece of fruit. Uh, you, you had no track record whatsoever. We didn't set this up. We didn't stage this. You had no idea where that banana came from. You, you sort of took it on blind faith. Why did you put that into your body? I mean, seriously, Nate, I'm a little concerned. Did you, like, tell me, was there any thought process to that? Or when I tossed the banana, did you just crack into it and start eating it? Okay, why? You were hungry, okay. Did your appetite override your rationale to say, I should probably, like, check this out and make sure it's safe and good and, like, let Lucas take a bite first? And <laughs> did, you, did you do any of that? Or did the appetite just overrule that? If you were mildly hungry, would you still have probably just eaten into it or would you have done a little bit of research on that banana? Okay, why? Okay, so it, 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 where it came from. How about you, Brandon? Any thought given to, to that breakfast bar? If I was going to prove a point about sin dirtying things and inject it with something, none of that? Okay, you just ate it. Any thought given whatsoever to the certainty of, of it being what I said it was? Okay, Sadie, same question. That's a refrigerated item. <laughs> Conceivably, in my refrigerator, uh, it could have kicked off in the middle of the night. I could turn it too low because I'm cheap and don't want to pay the bill. I could have, like, that one could have been past due date. Did you even check the uh, date on that, by the way? <laughs> Did you check it? You checked it. <laughs> All right. So... So there's, there's either a little bit of trust issues going on that I need to work on with Sadie, or we just have someone sharp that says, man, I ain't putting this in my mouth until... Yeah. Sadie eats things out of my home fridge all the time. If there's anyone who probably trusts the food coming from me, it would be Sadie. Here's why I bring this up. Um, we do things all the time, gang. All the time. That, that really move us forward based on probability versus certainty. So I don't know if I ask these three, are you certain about that item? I, no, I don't think I would say I'm certain. Well, then why did you just put it into your body? I mean, that's a big decision, right? We do this all the time. By the way, I eat some variation of that breakfast almost every day that I'm here at the office. I could tell you, if you were to ask me, how do we know this is safe? I could say this. I don't know for sure. I don't even know the supply chain of Trader Joe's. But I can, I can tell you this from personal experience. I have eaten some variation of those three items, probably bought from a similar store for years and years. And I'm still upright. So, so none of you thought the need to ask that. But we do this all the time is that we move forward with things about certainty. Now, let's move on to something a little bit more substantial. Can we be certain about the things that you have been taught regarding faith in God? We won't do response. I just want you to mull these things over. Aren't you told sometimes that faith is just something that you, uh, that, that you believe without certainty? So that begs the question, are these two somehow in opposition of each other? Isn't it proud and arrogant to make the claim that we just read in the scriptures, which says, I want you to be certain of the things that you've been taught. Is that proud and arrogant of Luke to, to make that claim? 
Finally, how can you trust people you've never met writing things that you didn't see them write, who claim to be researching things that you don't know if they claimed that they, that they did that or not? These are valid questions. Many of you are told things over and over that are really silly from friends, from teachers, from co-workers, from neighbors, from authorities on all kinds of talking screens. And I say they're silly because their statement does not stand up to their own, uh, their own claim. We talk about these regularly. They're so embedded in our culture that many people are blind to them. I'll give you just a couple. People that say, well, you cannot know truth. How do we test that? We say, well, is that knowable? Do you know that truth? Right? That's a silly claim because it doesn't, if that's true, we can't know that it's true. Here's another one. There is no absolute truth. Is that absolutely true? That's a silly statement. It's illogical. All truth must be backed by science. Have you heard that before? I don't believe anything that's not backed by science. All truth must be backed by science is a philosophical claim. It is making a true statement that you cannot apply the scientific method to. It's leaning on something else with that, and no one questions it, it seems. Let me give you one more. And America is swimming in a sea of relativism. All truth is relative. All truth of relative means this. Well, that's true for you, but not true for me. This is a nonsensical kind of thing, obviously, because it doesn't stand up to itself. You could say, well, is that truth relative? Is that truth, that all truth is relative, true for you, but not true for me? So these are silly sorts of statements that are made. Let's stick on all truth is relative for a moment. Truth is sort of up for grabs in our country, and it seems to be determined either by the individual or by the group. By the group means if we voted it through... Enough of us think that this is valuable or true or moral or immoral that we will go with that and say that that's truth. There's something called objective truth and subjective truth. Objective truth is something that is always true for all people and it's unchanging. Subjective truth is something uh, that, is, uh, that is not um, true for all people. So in other words, it's, it's preferences. Let me give you an illustration. Sean McDowell uh, spoke one time at Hume Lake, and he had this great illustration of, of ice cream or insulin. If someone were to tell you uh, their favorite ice cream flavor, they would be telling you a subjective truth. It's a preference, uh, and, and that's, how we, that's how we sort of think in those terms, is that that's a subjective truth. If you were to struggle with diabetes... And a doctor were to come and prescribe for you insulin, he would not come and ask your preference in medicines. He would be wanting to give you something that helps control your diabetes. So he would give you insulin. So let me give you a little test right now. I want you to take your notes and just write 1 through 10. And you're going to write ice cream if the statement that I'm making is a subjective claim. And you're going to write insulin if it is something that is an objective claim. All right, we're going to take a stab at this and see if this gets us thinking along some lines. In most places in life, by the way, we demand objective truth. 
But so many times when discussions about faith, matters of God, and morality come up, we sort of flip this switch into, well, who can really know? That's, that's true for you, it's not true for me, that doesn't work for me, and, and all kinds of discussion goes on. And many in our culture, perhaps many in this room, are okay with that. They think, yeah, that's, that is how the world is set up. I would challenge that. Here's number one. Um, let me point to, uh, to Rhonda's sweater. Rhonda, just wave your hand for a second. Rhonda's sweater is red. Okay, so is that ice cream or insulin? You can write that down. Just, just write down question one, uh, I see or I, however you want to code it. Number two, red is the most beautiful color. Number three, two plus two equals four. We know Grace's answer. Number four, tropical island vacations are the best kind. Number five, atoms consist of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Insulin or ice cream? Number six, Ruth Donato can bench press 350 pounds. Some of you are like, who's Ruth Donato? It doesn't really matter, but it's right here. Number seven, God exists. Number eight, Jesus is the only way to God, even for Jews. Number nine, premarital sex is immoral. And number 10, elective abortions are immoral. Subjective truth or objective truth? We're not going to go through these one at, one at a time, but I would submit to you these things. <clears throat> I think there's a very valid argument to say that all of them are objective truths. Probably most of you I think, maybe, in a church setting, would call it number two and four as subjective, and potentially the rest as objective. I think once we get to the morality ones, I think there could be a bigger split with that. Let me remind you this, that objective claims are either true or false. So, it's not that you would agree necessarily that God exists or that you would agree that premarital sex is immoral. It's just that that's an objective truth. That's either true or it is false. But it lands in the realm of objective, not of subjective. I bring up all of that to, to sort of hopefully create this little tension of what you feel regularly, and that is this. Can we know these things? Luke wrote, so you can be certain, friends. Luke wrote so that you would trust the accuracy of what he has reported. Luke is claiming not to be the ice cream man, but the doctor. Bringing you insulin. Bringing you the medicine. Accurately. In a timely fashion. In a way that would, that would help you. Luke is sort of his dissertation. It's his life's work. Luke is a renowned historian whose work has been studied, tested, and trusted worldwide for centuries. 
Why? Why is that? It's kind of interesting because we actually know very little about Luke, the author of Luke. There's only a handful of verses that reference him specifically. You probably don't know this, but he's actually a guy who wrote more of the New Testament by word count than any other person. More than Paul? He wrote 13 Yeah, more than Paul. What's the sequel to Luke? Acts. Top three longest books of the Bible. Luke, number one. Matthew. And then a shade behind that is Acts. By original language word count. That's a giant chunk of the scriptures. We don't know a ton about Luke. And yet he wrote all of this. Here's some things we, that, that jump out. We know that he's a doctor. He's been referred to by Paul as our dear friend. He's been referred to by Paul as a fellow worker. At the end of Paul's ministry, he mourns the fact that all have abandoned him except Luke. Dr. Luke, the beloved physician, he's still here with me. He's the only gospel writer to compile a sequel in that of Acts, and he's the only of the four gospels to address his book to someone named Theophilus, to have a personal addressing to someone. By the way, a few different thoughts on that. It, who, who was Theophilus? We don't really know much about who it was written to either. Some people have thought that, you know, Theo, that's theology God, and Philos, Philadelphia, love. It could be like code, like lover of God. His name literally means lover of God. So it could be code for like anyone who's a lover of God, I'm writing it to you. I think that sounds pretty cool, but I actually sort of land in the camp. I think he was actually someone who was a, a, a benefactor, maybe of nobility, whatever, and purposed Paul to write this and financed Paul to be able to, to do this. Either way, it doesn't change a whole lot. What can we deduce about Paul? Number one is this, that God saves and uses all kinds. Consider Luke for a second. A Gentile, an outsider, a newcomer to the story, a non-eyewitness, a white-collar profession person. And what is he used by God to do? He's called to highlight and celebrate his Lord Jesus Christ, who was a Jew, who was an insider, who was a veteran to the story, and has had lineage to prove it, who was blue-collar rather than white-collar. So opposite in almost every way. We also can deduce this, that Luke accomplished his job. Luke was trying to highlight the incomparable beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and leave you worshiping him and not worried so much about Luke. Most of you in this room are surprised like I was to go, holy smokes, Luke wrote that much of the Bible? And yet we hardly talk about Luke. We know Paul. But Luke gets out of the way. There's a humility that just elevates and highlights the work and the story that God is doing rather than the man compiling it. There's a couple hurdles that we need to sort of be aware of as we walk through this. One is familiarity. How many have heard familiarity breeds contempt? Right? That means you don't like it. Most of you aren't like angry at Luke. Oh man, we're doing Luke? What's up with that? None of you had that response, or you hit it really well. But familiarity also breeds complacency. Let me just guard you about something. We're going to read some things at the Christmas season this, this coming few weeks in Luke, and you will, in your brain, you can hear Linus talking. You're like, I already know where this is going. I've heard this before. And that complacency can have you sort of overlook the beauty of what's there. 
So as we go through Luke and Jesus starts in on a parable, the prodigal son, you're like, oh, I know this one. We can check out and say, I've heard this before. So that's one hurdle that I would just sort of guard, uh, ask you to, to, to guard against, be aware of. A second hurdle is this, that it's an ancient document. Anytime we're trying to discern meaning and figure out what's going on from somewhere else, it requires some, some, some challenge and sort of a closer look with that. We have sort of a bias about our current context, don't we? Everyone thinks this way, because we think this way. Everyone values this. It's like self-evident. And even today, right now, you go around the world, it's not true. Shockingly not true. Think about writing something down in the ancient world. Right now, if you take pictures, like, we don't think about how many pictures we take. But when I was growing up, you thought about it. Why? Because you had 24 pictures to take on that little roll of film. Then you had to go take that to a little, like, stand and one hour photo it and come back and pay for each print of that film. So if your finger was in the way, if someone was blinking, if you were moving, all kinds of stuff, you thought about which picture you took. Now, I'm sure one of those will be good. Let's move on. Then you never look at it again. So think about writing down right now. Paper's abundant. No one scolds the children for taking a piece of paper and writing. How dare you do that? Why? Because paper's abundant. What did it take to write something down in the old days? A lot. Papyrus, animal skins. Man, those were costly things. You thought long and hard about what you're going to write down. By the way, you're not typing it. It actually takes effort to, to write down. Secondly is this, a then versus now consideration you need to think about is that the way we tell history now in our culture leads our brain to think there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, and then we attach this value to it. It's either accurate or it's inaccurate. Well, I would push back on that. I would say that if you go back in time and look at how people told stories and what they gave sort of details to, that that actually shapes, the context they're writing in shapes how they write. So Luke preempts the question of why should you believe me when he says this about his careful research. Luke 1, 3, he says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I'm writing to you an orderly account. Luke and its companion Acts are filled with names, places, dates, and things like that. But he's not concerned in the same way that we might be. If we were writing a family history, we might say, Aunt Gertrude, was she born in September 27th of 1938, or was it February 16th of the following year? I've got to get this right, or my family history is not accurate. The ancient mind's not concerned with that. So it's going to frustrate you a little bit, if you're reading Luke and you see some things, were there, were there two angels here, one angel there? Why, why is, are there some discrepancies uh, in, in, this, in this story? He's also more general in his time frame. So it would be something like this. In the third year of President Trump's governing, this happened. So he doesn't give us an exact thing, but kind of places us, like we go, like those who are reading it, like, yep, that's when it is. And, and those who would be reading it centuries from now in a different place could actually sort of cross-reference that and say, yeah, that's, that's when these things took place. Flip over to Acts 1 for just a second. In Acts 1, he says this. Luke writing again to Theophilus. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men, watch this, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
orderly account, many convincing proofs. As we read through Luke, friends, this is not a tale that's been whipped up. It's grounded in a context of reality. He is making objective truth claims. Let me show you something very, very quickly. This is just from the book of Acts for a second. What does an orderly account look like? If you ask Rich Henderson what's orderly, uh, and you ask my mom what's orderly, you would get two different things. But just from the book of Acts, if you sort of look at, at how it's put together, and it's very, very difficult to get this just reading straight through the book. I've read the book of Acts a ton of times. I've never seen this. If you go through the book of Acts, there are seven speeches. Seven from Peter, seven from Paul, and seven by others. Is that an accident or is that on purpose? Luke's made the claim, I've done this. I've compiled all these speeches here. I'm going to grab seven of these from from Paul, seven from Peter, and then seven from others. Let me keep going. He compiles stories. Why does he leave certain things in and take certain things out? This is a list. Peter heals a lame man. Uh, shadows give healing. He confronts a sorcerer. He raises Tabitha from the dead. On and on and on it goes. Watch this with Paul. With Paul, Paul heals a lame man. His, his clothing gives healing. He confronts a sorcerer. He raises someone from the dead. He's worshipped. Is that accidental or is that orderly? Is there purpose and intent behind it? I'm showing you this because of this. We can speculate about why Luke orders his gospel a certain way and why he tells certain things in in Acts, but we cannot dispute, it's plain as day, that it is put together in an orderly fashion. There is thought and intent as to why it's there. Now, some might look at this and say this. you, You know why Luke did that? Because he knew there would be a battle. Who's more important in Acts? Is it Peter or is it Paul? Peter's the apostle to the Jews. What's Paul? He's the apostle to Gentiles. What are Gentiles? They're non-Jews. Well, our guy, you know, his shadow healed someone. Our guy raised someone from the dead. Our guy did this, 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 and this. What do the Gentiles say? Check, 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 mate. We're even Stephen. Who's more important? The Jews? Do they get to make the calls moving forward in the early church? Or is it the Gentiles? It almost looks like there's some thought and intentionality to say, friends, all on the same team. God's working through the insiders and the outsiders. This thing's blowing wide open. I want you to see it. Why four Gospels? Four Gospels paint a more accurate picture. This is from Starbucks this morning. Three different news headlines from today. They still sell newspapers. Did anyone know that? I was a paper boy. I was in the business. I didn't even know they still sold these things. George Bush is remembered. President Trump's on the next one. Paradise Fire. Should we rebuild on the bottom one? Why are there three different newspapers, three different headlines, different vantage points about what's going on on the day, different spotlights? That's sort of what Four Gospels is all about. I'm going to hit the pause button right here. I have an hour's more material. (laughs) but we'll just hit pause. Let me invite the band to come on up. Um, let, me, let me leave us with this thought, that as we continue reading through Luke, it's just a beautiful thing that we're in this Advent season. By the way, um, and our team did a great job for bringing Christmas to us. I love it. Uh, there's more on the way Saturday at our Christmas party. We're going to do some decorating and some fun stuff going on there. But this is a special season. 
It's a special season of like not just saying, let's celebrate this for 24 hours. We say, man, for weeks leading up to it, let's really get our heads around it. We've offered to all of our families a, a, a devotional that, that, um, that we've just said, here, take this for free. And if this helps with, um, with sort of celebrating Advent in a fresh way this year, uh, here's, here's a resource for that. But for all of us, my prayer is this. Oh, come, let us adore him. That is why Luke wrote the gospel. That's why we're going to start studying this book. I would encourage you to be reading on your own and, and, and the things we sort of gloss over that you would go back up and say, man, that really interested me. That piqued my curiosity. I wonder if that's actually true. And, and go and, and dig into it some more. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for the confidence that I have in putting your word into my mouth and into my life. God, I stand here as someone who has read, sought to follow, lived a life of falling and getting back up, shielded by grace, standing on grace, since I was 17 years old. And God, with each passing day with all of my faculties and senses being brought to this I'm left utterly confident that you have a plan of redemption God we're not just reading a biography of some great teacher it's a story we actually enter into and as we read the Bible the Bible reads us and God you've invited skeptics and devoted followers and everyone in between to simply open and read and see for yourself. Thank you for seeing fit to put some things in writing. We trust that you will show up in that, God. We trust that you will speak to us in that. God, just now as we sing this song, Lord, it's a song that we're familiar with, but it fits so well with our theme that you're the remedy. God, we're the wounded healers. We didn't scrub in so that we could be part of the work. You scrubbed us clean and invited us into the work. We don't have a clue what to do, but you do. Scalpel, and we say, yes, sir, and we hand it to you. And we marvel as you do surgery on the lives of people because you understand and made them. God, we rejoice at our own healing going on, and we rejoice that we get to walk with you and have a front row seat and participate in the miracle of new life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.